to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. I'm joined today by Michael Johns. Michael has been on the program before, and his bio is really impressive. He was foreign policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, and co-founder of the Tea Party. Michael has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, the National Review, among many others, and Michael is co-host with Malcolm on Viewpoint Presents, which you can hear every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Today we're going to talk about several different topics. The fallout from the Democrat National Convention and what it means for America. What's going on with China and the Three Gorges Dam and the global war against Christianity. It's all interesting, so stay tuned. Many of us watched the Democrat convention last week, and I wonder, what did it tell Americans about the future of America under a new government led by Democrats next January? It struck me odd that although the convention went on for four days, there was very little mention of any real platform items, mostly They talked about broad generalities, so it didn't tell Americans much about what the Democrats are planning to do for or to America. So there is a platform. It's 80 pages, and they call it the most progressive platform in American history. It includes things like an expanded anti-gun plank, a pro-Iran anti-Israel plank that support several things, including an end to the Iran sanctions and a re-entering of Obama's Iran deal. It also contains planks protecting abortion rights and calling back America's counterterrorism operations around the world. And on the subject of equal rights, they put a very curious statement in their platform. It says, quote, we commit ourselves to the vision articulated by Frederick Douglass of, quote, a government founded upon justice and recognizing the equal rights of all, unquote. But wait a minute. According to the Democrats, some people are more equal than others. For example, the platform specifically singles out people with dark skin, women, LGBTQ plus people, religious minorities, people with disabilities, Native Americans, and all, they say, who have been discriminated against in too many ways for too many generations, unquote, that all of these people are more equal than the rest of Americans. It seems as though, according to the Democrats, the people who are more equal and not the all that Frederick Douglass referred to are the minorities, the people who are not white, even though the people who are white make up about 73% of the population of this country. And by the way, isn't dividing people by race and implying that one race is better than another, isn't that racist? Michael, what do you think? What did you make of the Democrat convention last week? Well, quantifiably, it did not move the ball forward for uh, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Uh, the president, President Trump, ended the week 
with approval rating at uh, 51%, according to Rasmussen, which is as high as it's been at least in weeks now. I, I didn't feel, uh, as you correctly pointed out, that they were, I, were really being able to articulate uh, any coherent vision for the future of the country. So we heard a lot of name calling. We heard a lot of finger pointing. We heard, you know, cheap, cheap shots at our president. But you didn't get from them the substance on their $4 trillion tax raising plan, uh, which would suffocate jobs and wages in this country. You didn't hear from them any discussion of the fact that they have no plan, literally no plan to secure the southern border. Uh, You didn't hear from them um, the fact that their Green New Deal idea concept would cost 10 million energy jobs. And you heard a lot of criticism about the president's management of um, the pandemic, but no blame on the country of origin for that pandemic, China, nor did I hear any specific policy that really deviated from things that the president's already done. So it was bizarre in that way. And the other thing, that, the, the final thing that we did not hear much of was the name Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> he was sort of kept under wraps for most of the first few days and then presented. But uh, it seems to me you have a party that is aware they have a radicalized policy agenda that's not going to resonate, is not resonating with the American people. Is not a co- it's not a coherent or cohesive policy that really adds up to measurable uh, solutions for the country. And then you have this candidate who 59% of the American people believe is not suited to complete a four-year term. On top of that, a majority of Americans believe Kamala Harris is not qualified to be president. That leaves them in, I think, quite a predicament. They don't have the candidates. They don't have the ideas. And they're caught between a radical left that is very loud, but ultimately represents a very small percentage of the country, and their need to be able to be appealing to mainstream voters, which their policy agenda for the country clearly does not. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that I noticed about that platform, such as as much as we heard about it, was that it does not endorse Medicare for all. And it does not endorse the Green New Deal. And that apparently infuriates the socialists. It sounds to me like the Democrats are really as divided as the country is itself. And that's interesting because in the end, when they took a vote on this platform, a thousand delegates opposed it and would not vote for it. That's nearly 25% of all the delegates. They didn't like it, and they voted against it. So I think that the problem that the Democrats have right now is that not only are they divided, but they can't present a coherent platform because they are afraid that if they do a platform which is satisfying to the socialists, it will alienate the moderates. And if they do a platform that's okay with the moderates, they're going to alienate the socialists. So I don't know that there is a way out of this. They haven't found it yet, for sure. Well, I think everything they're doing right now is politicized and designed for political purposes. It is telling that you have uh, a party that apparently is incapable of even developing a consensus within the delegates of their own party. 
And that certainly is suggestive of the fact that they're going to struggle, I think, at being able to relate and identify with the types of voters that they need to be identifying with. But I will tell you this, I think if you looked at that four days of the Democrat convention that just transpired, which was hugely negative and dark and bleak and uh, and without substance, I think it's going to contrast immensely with, I think, a very upbeat Republican convention that we'll see and that will reflect uh, a very concrete agenda for the next four years of the country designed to make America great again, again, as Vice <laughs> President Pence said. You know, one other thing that was very interesting about the convention is that not one person who spoke in those four nights, not one of them mentioned what is going on in our cities, the violence, the riots, the destruction, the, the, the harm to people, and not one of them talked about it. I thought that was extremely interesting, but I think maybe we should spend a couple of minutes talking about what is going on in our cities and what it means for our country. We have a choice of two candidates for president. Only one of them is going to win. But what is going to be the fallout from all of this? Well, I think it's telling that they were unwilling to address the street violence, which by and large the mayors of their own party, the Democrat Party, control. Um, it, It was an intriguing opportunity because I think, you know, you have two options, really, in my judgment, uh, that, and they didn't pursue either of them. One would be to come out and say, you know, look, uh, we understand frustration in environments across this country, and um, we, you know, understand the uh, pressing need for uh, maybe even law enforcement, criminal justice reform, but you're not advancing that cause by tearing up the very cities that you presumably are trying to improve. So please, you know, stop burning down buildings, stop tearing up the streets, stop looting and stop shooting at people. That would have been the responsible message from a party that was committed to the country's well-being. We didn't, as you correctly said, we didn't hear that. Conversely, as much as I would find it outrageous, you know, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't realize that there's a good portion of that party that fully supports the tactics that are being used, the violent tactics that are being used in the street. And I think, honestly, I would have almost more respect for that approach if they come out and said, we stand with what you're doing. At least the American voter would be enlightened to the reality that this party has become so increasingly radicalized, so comfortable with violent tactics so willing to ostracize large portions of the country, so willing to divide among any component of the identity politics they use to try to secure the votes that they need. I think it would almost be more intellectually honest. Instead, they, as you point out, they basically dodged the question and they dodged it for that same reason. They don't want to alienate the rioters in the street whose support they consider important. And they don't want to embrace it for fear of losing the types of voters that they're going to need if they have any chance of winning. Michael, do you um, suppose that the people who are out on the street who are rioting, are these people who go to the polls and vote? I don't know for a fact, um, obviously, but I and I and I would further say that I don't think there's much enthusiasm among them for Joe Biden. Um 
to the extent they're politically involved. I think they were much more aligned with Sanders. And, you know, the thousand votes against the party platform was telling because I think it really reflects the fact that you have not healed the wounds that started in 2016 when the Democrat establishment really cheated Sanders out of the nomination in all kinds of ways. Hillary Clinton's loaning money to the Democrat Party, the you know, the offering of of uh, questions to uh, Hillary Clinton for that CNN debate, yeah. a lot of the, the uh, use of a lot of super delegates. You know, democracy shouldn't be this complicated, really. And it shouldn't be this corrupt. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole concept of a super delegate, in my judgment, contradicts the very nature of democracy. It bestows upon the party establishment a certain degree of leverage that it can utilize even if the people are not with it. And Hillary Clinton, Clinton took advantage of every opportunity with those superdelegates, the absence of which that race, as close as it ultimately was, would have been even closer uh, at the Philadelphia Convention in, in 16. But I think this is still the ongoing issue. Is those wounds haven't been healed. Um, and if they're, And like you said, if they're looking at this platform, you don't have the full embrace in it of the Medicare for all, you know, the full embrace of the Green New Deal. There's no uh, embrace for formally for cuts in law enforcement uh, funding. I think they're committed. I think the party's committed to all three of those things. I think they tell these radicals, hey, don't pay attention to this. This is a political document, not a policy document. But that ultimately gets to the complete insincerity and um, the need to sort of conceal the end goals. And that's been driving this party for a long time. I'll tell you one thing, I would find it very difficult to defend if I were on the other side, if I did hold that ideology. I just think intellectually it would be very difficult to make those arguments. Most of the ones that make any degree of sense, like criminal justice reform, are ones the Republican Party has actually taken the lead in. You know, the first step back that President Bush signed into law was the most substantive criminal justice reform in modern times. It was the, you know, it let a lot of people out of a lot of out of prison, diminished the sentences of others. It brought a certain humanitarianism to incarceration, and you know, it, it, he took the lead on that. Barack Obama did nothing for the criminal justice reform in this country. He did nothing from on mandatory sentencing. He did nothing on over policing. It's it, it's baffling to a lot of conservatives and Republicans how this coalition of individuals can continue to gravitate to this party that has used them and then taken them for granted. Yeah. And, you know, African-Americans in this country, really more Americans were on at the poverty level when Obama left than when we arrived. More Americans were on food stamps when he left than before he arrived. And the perception of the American people is that the racial divide in the country uh, worsened on the watch of a Barack Obama and not mentioned now because of the context of what we're dealing with. But, you know, if you looked at the numbers, say that Gallup was using in, say, as late as late 2019, the American people, including African-Americans, had felt that race relations in the country had improved, at least incrementally, a few points on the watch uh, and leadership of, of, uh, of President Trump. You know, one of the things I think that is going to be a consequence of the 
inability of the Democrats to lead in the face of all this violence in so many cities, and it's actually spreading. There, there are riots now in Kenosha and in, in, in uh, Denver where there weren't before. And I think one of the, the outcomes is that we're not going to solve this problem because there is no leadership from the left that wants to do it. And that is something that we are going to have to come to terms with because what's going on in our cities, if the left is successful, is going to get much worse. And the destruction of our cities could lead to the destruction of our nation. And that would be a terrible thing for Americans and for the world. Now, right after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about an impending disaster of biblical proportions in China. And we're also going to talk a little bit about a new announcement relating to North Korea. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. China has not only perpetrated lies about the virus that they infected the world with, but they're now also lying about the danger that exists right in their own country. And it threatens a large part of their population. Now, China has a population of 1.4 billion people. So when you say that a large portion of their population is at risk, that's saying something. There is a huge dam in China. It was built in 1997, between 1994 and 1997. It's called the Three Gorges Dam. Now, here's the problem. This dam is so large, it's almost a mile and a quarter long. It's five times the size of the Hoover Dam, and it generates 11 times as much electricity. This is the largest hydroelectric dam in the whole world. It was built between 1994 and I think 1997 or 1998. It's almost a mile and a quarter long, this dam. And it's five times the size of the Hoover Dam. And it generates 11 times as much electricity as the four next largest dams in the world put together. And here's something else. It holds back so much water that it has a measurable effect on the rotation of the earth. Think about it. That's, that's amazing. So what happens if the dam fails? Because they've been having torrential rains that have been falling almost continuously 
since June. The dam straddles the Yangtze River, which is the longest river in Asia and the third longest river in the world. So the backup of water with all of the streams and the rivers flowing into it from above the dam, and that's really significant. And the pressure that all that water puts against the back of the dam may be more than the dam can withstand. And here's another thing. When they were building this dam, they called in some American engineers to check what they were doing. And the engineers found that there were a lot of structural defects. And they told them. And you know what the Chinese said to them? They said, you're being racist. <laughs> so the engineers went home. And the Chinese didn't change anything in their construction. They just kept on going. So now we have a situation where the dam is starting to spring leaks. It's starting to crack. And the whole infrastructure of the dam is beginning to move. It's warping. Now, the Chinese government says, oh, everything's okay. It's not all right. Just not to worry. But as of the end of July, they were already secretly relocating 38 million people from the area at risk downstream. Now, that includes the city of Wuhan. You remember that city where the Chinese virus started? And all the way downstream to the city of Shanghai, which has a population of more than 24 million people. And by the way, the city of Wuhan had a population of 11 million people. So that's a lot of people. And then... There are about a hundred cities and towns located along that river. The total population that could be impacted by dam failure is something more than 400 million people. If this happens, if the dam fails, what will be the global consequences? You want to take a stab at this, Michael? Well, the one thing that I've noticed um, routinely on any issue related to China, unlike our own country, where we just sort of understand and expect that we're going to have challenges and issues that arise on infrastructure and, and many other issues and that mistakes get made, which is why we have a government, why we have a leadership to address these issues. There is such extraordinary pride in the Communist Party of China that they become very reluctant to even acknowledge any deficiency in their country. I think it's a primary reason why they, to this date, won't acknowledge that the coronavirus clearly originated in China under terms that we don't understand, but at least to acknowledge that the fact that it originated there would be a nice step forward. And on this issue, too, as you correctly say, for a long time, any of the issues related to this were uh, kind of swept under the rug and not addressed. I mean, they have had extraordinary floods from the Yangtze River. Uh, 1998, 4,000 people were killed. You go back to 1954, there were 33,000 pe people killed. This is an extraordinary large and powerful river that goes some 3,900 miles across all of China. River, the third, the uh, third largest in the world, is wholly contained within um, China and endangers many people. There are objective cracks in the dam, and the summer period, which is their heavy rain period, has now driven the the water capacity 
at that dam up to uh, 543 feet. The maximum that it can take, I think, is 574. So it's right there at the point of presenting overflow and uh, possible breakage issues. I'm not hearing enough about it. Uh, we probably should be hearing more about it simply because this has long been identified as a national uh, security target. I can remember when ta- Taiwan said they would uh, take out the Three Words Dam and it was a big global scandal. But it is a uh, area of immense pride to the Communist Party, but it's also uh, a dam that clearly is facing some issues. And should it to the break, I mean, the um, associated damage uh, to that country, do you correctly say 400 million people would be extraordinary? They've already relocated many. There already have been deaths over the summer from these floods and some $26 billion in damage as a result of it. The Three Gorges Dam is what keeps this whole river essentially connected it is all sort of connectivity issues down the line of the river which goes from tibet all the way out to the east china sea and counts for about 20 percent of the entire gross domestic product of uh, of the country so it's an immensely important strategic asset of the country and uh, there's been a lot of criticism too you know i've always found it puzzling that environmentalists who i take at their word that they care about the environment have never really targeted the largest polluter in the world by far, which is communist China. You know, a lot of the flooding that has been occurring out of the Yangtze is attributable to a lot of the uh, the agricultural runoff and the loss of wetland lakes and other issues that have not received the proper attention that they are deserving of. Just like the fires in California have been a product of, you know, not sufficiently handling the forestation issues that are necessary to prevent these brush fires that turn into colossally colossal damaging fires in that region. This is a, a country in communist China that has really been incredibly disregarding of any environmental consideration, has more CO2 emissions than any country in the world, routinely just dumps stuff into water bodies, and this dam now presents a major issue because I, I think, I believe, I believe you're with me on this, that the reported numbers of, of the effect of coronavirus in China are many times higher than what's been reported. I believe from sources that I consider to be highly reliable that the number of people who were affected by this virus are in the millions. So, you know, when you're talking about the dam, and that's this is another thing, you talked about pollution. The creation of the dam was done without any regard to the ecology of the region, and they destroyed some very precious ecological systems in the construction of this dam, and they really didn't care. And by the way, this is compounded by the fact that this dam is situated in a very active geological location. There are earthquakes and mudslides fairly frequently. And if you consider that the dam itself may now be fragile, and that is compounded by the huge amount of water that is building up behind the dam, this is just a disaster waiting to happen. And the Chinese government is not doing 
nearly enough about it. This is an incredibly aggressive and ruthless government that, and it's very saddening because China and the people of China, the, the work ethic of the people of China, the, the artistic and other skill sets, it's an incredibly great country. I always feel torn in two different directions between my admiration for the country and um, its unbelievably rich history and its uh, contributions over the time and the fact that its people are so stifled and disregarded and not held at all in any consideration for the most part in its routine policy decisions. It is really one of the great human rights violators of the world. You and I have spoken about the Uyghur situation before. We've talked about the violation of the uh, agreement on Hong Kong. I think, you know, kind of the memo has now been written and circulated, and anyone who is willing to be objective about the reality of China understands that this is a regime that is ruthless and not willing to keep its word. It routinely lies and misrepresents things and steals and cheats. And its ascent has unfortunately been rewarded by a lot of those tactics, which is one of the most important policy planks of President Trump, you know, of basically being beginning to confront China as it really is, not China as it existed in the, you know, sort of fantasy mindset of sinologists in late 20th century. And they were routinely wrong about everything. They said as the Chinese economy developed, that they would become more integrated with the West, they would become more respect, respectful of human rights at home, they would become less confrontational uh, militarily and diplomatically and economically, and the exact opposite has been the case. So, you know, I think the war against expertise uh, has won one here on China because the China experts um, were wrong and we almost would have been better off not having listened to a lot of the guidance that they offered us, particularly through the 90s, where I think we were beginning to formulate this concept of integrating China into the world economy and disregarding and being oblivious to the fact that we were losing all industries and millions upon millions of workers to their cheating economic and tactics and unfair competitive tactics. But there's never been any ramifications for China's biggest violations in the world, including the extraordinary economic damage they've imposed on the United States. And we've allowed them to impose on the United States through their uh, currency manipulation, their dumping policies, their industry subsidies. Um, we, you know, we really should have awoken to this many decades ago, certainly by Bill Clinton's term, it should have been apparent to us that we had a regime that was not interested in an amicable relationship with us. Yeah, you know, getting back just for a moment to the dam, it is an, an example of how cruel this government really is. They are lying to the world about what's happening with the dam, and they are putting at risk the lives of 400 million people. That's one third of their population. So it, it this whole thing yeah, is. Yeah, I, I don't. It's just, and it was the same thing with the coronavirus. I mean, we, you know, President Trump, the end of December, beginning of January, had CDC experts lined up 
uh, ready to, to go to China to be helpful in understanding the pandemic and developing appropriate protocols to contain the damage of it, both in China and around the world. They wouldn't let our experts in. Why wouldn't they let them in? That's a good question. Uh, one thing that's beyond any dispute is they this enormous national pride of the Communist Party that gets in the way. And right now, I can't think of anything more constructive than just being upfront about the fact that we have an opportunity to potentially resolve a major crisis before it occurs, if it occurs. You know, get the best experts together, bring them in. Don't be worried about the nationality of them. Uh, don't be worried about the fact that a dam that's been created has got some cracks in it. Um, it seems to me that even on a strictly political basis, which I think is how they make a lot of these decisions, allowing this dam to break would be a colossal political development for the Communist Party, whereas acknowledging its deficiencies and resolving it now would be the far more sensible approach. One of the things that we have to consider, and China is not considering, is what will happen to China if this dam breaks, and what will, what does that mean to the rest of the world? Economically, China is going to lose, first of all, one of its most productive commercial cities, which is Wuhan, and then Shanghai, and they will lose those cities. Yeah, I was going to say, this could go all the way down to Shanghai. This goes all the I way mean, down to uh, Shanghai, the, the that's it. And so what we're dealing with now I is... I think people is a, almost need to envision this river. You know, most, I, I think... Like even most Americans, you know, have maybe seen the Mississippi or they've seen the Colorado. I mean, this is a very large, powerful river that moves very aggressively. And floods aggressively. The bottom line is that China will, I believe, if this dam breaks and all hell breaks loose, which is what will happen next, China's economy will be down the tubes. It'll be gone. It'll, it will collapse because there is nothing. there will be nothing to support it. And the impact on the rest of the world that buys so much of its product and is distributed throughout the world, this will be gone. So world economies are going to be hit by this if it happens. But this is going to be a catastrophe, as I said, of biblical proportions. One of the takeaways which Peter Navarro and you know, the Trump administration generally, I think, have been right on target with is that we have just absolutely got to get away from this heavy reliance on communist China for certainly any product or service that is essential to our national well-being, but really any product or service. I mean, they have monopolized the provision of key products and key parts of the economy, and we've become far too reliant on that. We experienced that in this pandemic where we realized all this PPE was being hoarded over there. We didn't have access to it. We weren't creating it. Pharmaceutical production, as much as 90% of this, even though it was largely intellectually discovered in the West and Europe or the US, was being manufactured over there, all to save a few dollars, but putting the country in immense danger in, in having to rely on this government, which frankly has shown no ability that it can be trusted. And it's increasingly defining itself as an enemy of the United States of America. Absolutely. The outcome of such a catastrophe 
will impact every country in the world that has any connection at all with China, which is most countries. Now, after the break, we're going to talk about two things, North Korea and a new story about Kim Jong-un and the global war against Christians. So stay right there. We'll be right back. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Well, there was an interesting, very interesting and somewhat startling item in the press this week. Kim Jong-un is back in the story. Well, we've been talking about him on and off since last April, even before, but certainly last April when he suddenly disappeared. Everybody said, well, he's hiding from the coronavirus. Well, he is, he's fine. He just is taking a vacation. Well, he had surgery. He had heart surgery. He had a stent put in. And it was done by a Chinese surgeon who botched the surgery. Anyway, Kim Jong-un is in a coma, and he's not uh, doing very well, and maybe he's dead. And then there were reports that he was well, and then there were sightings of him, not too frequently, but there were some sightings. And then this week, there was this rumor that he was truly incapacitated, and that They were looking for a successor and that his sister, who is also a Kim, she's Kim Yo-jung, and she was positioning herself to take over from her brother. There were so many stories out there that it was really hard to keep up with them. And since North Korea is known as the hermit kingdom, it's the secret kingdom, very few people know what's going on inside this uh, very secretive country. So the question is, what is really happening, and where is Kim Jong-un, and what's going to happen next? This is the story. Now it's back in the news. Uh, a, um, a diplomat in South Korea has said that Kim is actually in a coma. He's been in a coma since he had that surgery in April, and that his sister is being positioned to take over for him. 
Now, if you've been listening to this program, you heard that back in April when I told you that. But this is a story that maybe uh, we could discuss the pros and cons of. What do you think, Michael? Well, firstly, I, um, it's Lord, the allegation, the the statement that he's in a coma appears to be pretty much a single source story. There is a South Korean um, former aide to uh, President uh, Kim Dae-jung uh, who has made that allegation. This is a source who's been relied upon for a long time for insight into North Korea. It's not that he doesn't have credibility. Uh, obviously, he does. I mean, his um, statement about uh, uh, Kim Jong's uh health condition has, has rocketed around the world. But I don't really think there's been any independent confirmation. And in fact, if you go back, there was the speculation really began in April when he had uh, missed his grandfather's birthday celebration. He missed that, which was sort of unheard of, and, and there was speculation then. And then the reporting kind of emerged about the heart surgery. But then he subsequently did emerge on May Day, May, May 1st, at a uh, the opening of a fertilizer plant in Sushan, which is like north of uh, Pyongyang, the capital, and uh, was was seen. It does appear indisputable that some of the, the key diplomatic responsibilities, including um, interacting with South Korea and the United States, have been offloaded to his younger sister, which is an intriguing development. And uh, also interesting is the fact that his uncle, who is a politically influential force, has returned from some diplomatic postings and might be involved in the government. This obviously is the challenge, I guess, the biggest point of a, of a closed society is that, you know, the people of that country, and in, you know, in this case with an emerging or developed nuclear power, however you want to look at it, um, a country that we sort of deserve to know who's running it and the points of contact on these things. And, you know, to have um, this level of speculation is, uh, it, I think it's both dangerous, but I think it's also by design. When a prominent uh, political figure in the government it doesn't show up at a key event or is not seen at a key event in North Korea, unlike the rest of the world where it might not be taken all that seriously, it's usually a pretty ominous sign. You know, this whole dynasty, Kim Il-sung, sort of the, the founder of, of North Korea in 1948, ran that country into the 1990s and was taken over by... Uh, his son, Kim Jong-il, who had several children with several different women. And Kim Jong-un had a had perceived his stepbrother as a, as a potential threat and rival. Pretty broadly, as it is known to have sent North Korean forces to have him killed in uh, Malaysia, in the airport there. He has an older son, brother, too. Uh, and. I, he, and he had him declared yeah. uh, incompetent in order for him to take his... You see, the line of succession for this family is that it goes from father to son to son to son and so forth. And so the next successor to Kim Jong-un, should he die, would be his son. And he's thought to have two or three children, but they're much too young to succeed him. And yeah. so the the next in line, would blood relative would be his sister, except being his sister, she's a woman. And the powers that be don't want a woman 
as leading, they, you know, they said essentially over my dead body. But she's a very powerful woman and she is very determined. And uh, her, her brother, Kim Jong-un, had her as his closest advisor. And so when he became apparently disabled, she started moving in. And the uncle is not in the line of succession. He's not in the direct bloodline. So he would have to fight her for it. And she is a tough customer. She is not somebody you want to meet on a dark street at night. But in fact, some people call her the Black Widow. But the, the point of all this is that since April, he has been distinguished more by his absence than by his presence. And another thing that, that I understand to be quite true Kim was known to have at least three body doubles. And in fact, we have photographs of them, of at least two of them. And these are people who have been groomed to look just like him so that if he's ill or he doesn't want to show up somewhere, they go. One of the conjectures now is that it hasn't been Kim who's been showing up, but one or more of his body doubles. And so that's one of the explanations if in fact he is ill, and yet he has been appearing from time to time in public places. And so that's one possibility. The other thing is that he hasn't been showing up very often. Last year, he made 50 public appearances. That's almost one every week. This year, the whole year, up to now, eight months into the, into the year, he has made only 17 public appearances. And most of them were before he disappeared in April. So I, I think there is a lot to recommend this theory that he is, in fact, incapacitated and, and that he is not able to rule. There is some confirmation, or there was early on, there was some confirmation from China that he had indeed had the surgery and it had not gone well. The most important fact, though, is to sort of reiterate that we're dealing with one country in North Korea that is the most closed society in the world, period. I don't think there's a close second. It, you know, it, with what happens there, how it happens, when it happens, why it happens. We don't know. Is a mystery to people who've spent, who've, who've spent their whole lives doing nothing but trying to understand North Korea. Yes. And um, the the secondary source that you're citing, I just got done saying, has become utterly unreliable. Simultaneously, we were involved in some fairly, at least mildly encouraging preliminary steps to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. And then all of a sudden, the you know head of state that we've been interacting with, who's still in his 30s, you know, like, yeah, he smokes and he's overweight, but you know, he's in his thirties. He's uh, thirty-six, I think. State of, of questionable of questionable health, and I think that becomes a big question because there's a lot at stake here. There was a lot of potential optimism, I think, or some optimism about the prospects for us beginning to pry open North Korea and get it, you know, end the Korean War officially, which, which unbeknownst to many is still formally not been ended. And, and most importantly, to get North Korea off of its nuclear weapons development path, which it considers critical to its global relevance and, and strategic importance, and which, in my judgment, I don't think 
the Communist Party of China has been done much to discourage. In fact, has almost certainly been complicit in. It is sort of intriguing now to have a situation where you have one emerging Kim, uh, who is a, who I think pretty indisputably has assumed responsibility for some of the most important foreign policy components in North Korea and a head of state whose whereabouts and health condition is unconfirmed in, to the world. One thing I tell you, having worked in our government, is that the intelligence capabilities of the United States in knowing what's going on are considerable. And I would almost assure you that we are aware of the state of uh, Kim Jong-un today and where he is, why he is there, and what precisely has happened. I would I would agree with that. I also wanted to just mention in brief, because we don't have time to talk about it today, but there was a second item about North Korea relating to the development of their nuclear weapons and that they have succeeded in miniaturizing a nuclear warhead. This is a story that I've been following since 2013, and I've written extensively about it. One day in the near future, I will devote a portion of the Friedman Report to that story because it's an interesting one. It's a little complex, so it needs some time. What I want to do now is talk about something that nobody really is talking very much about, and we need to talk about it. It's about the global war on Christians. We remember the murders of Christians in Syria, a lot of murders. Back when the civil war began in 2011 in Syria, what they called the civil war, there were probably dozens of little terrorist groups, and one of them was the incipient ISIS, who were part of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, who had headquarters in Iraq, but who sent its soldiers into Syria to learn and to fight guerrilla warfare. They camouflaged themselves under the umbrella of other terrorist groups. They developed a signature that became very recognizable. Their signature was mass murder in the most brutal way. They would round up Christian women and children and put them in a room and then shoot them all. Or they would round up Christian men and line them up alongside of a ditch, make them kneel down, and they would shoot each one in the back of the head until they fell into the ditch, and then they would just leave them there for the dogs. This was something that became a kind of hallmark for ISIS, and they practiced this in Syria. This was the beginning of the war on Christians in Syria and Iraq. And then, do you remember the, the murder of the Copt Christians on the shores of the Mediterranean in Libya? They slit their throats with long knives and decapitated them and let their blood flow into the waters of the Mediterranean. And then there was the Easter Day Massacre in 2019 in Sri Lanka. And later that same year in 2019, at Christmas time, ISIS murdered a hundred Christians in Nigeria. And most recently, Turkey has turned an old 4th century monastery in Istanbul, which was operating as a museum, into a mosque. And what is the world doing about this? It has ignored it. Is the war against religion that we are now seeing in America, is this a reflection or a result of the war against Christians that is now being fought all around the world?
That is my question. Well, it's a global war. It's, um, you know, taken the lives of hundreds of thousands abroad and at home. It's been more an issue of public policy and 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 law and and the rights of, of of freedom of religion for Christians. But this has been an ongoing was an ongoing theme throughout the Obama Biden years. In this political season, it's worth remembering that Obama Biden called uh, ISIS a JV team while they simultaneously went on and killed all of these civilians and destroyed all of these ancient and uh, historically important Christian sites. And, um, you know, to this day, there are about a quarter of a billion Christians that are living in countries where they face persecution. And that includes communist China that we were talking about, which doesn't receive enough attention because some of their Christian churches, when they affiliate with the Communist Party, are allowed to function. But those that have been independent of the communist government have been obliterated. Lots of symbols, Christian symbols and Christian churches have been bulldozed. And in Iraq and Syria, I think you have to look at that as the biggest decimation of Christian presence, really from the cradle of Christian civilization. And as one of the great human rights crises of modern times, and it was allowed to develop and it was allowed to to grow on the watch of Obama and Biden. President Trump said he would obliterate ISIS and he systematically went about it. He brought the battle tactics to ISIS that were needed, killed off ISIS leadership, and has essentially decimated about 99% of ISIS presence in that region that they once controlled. What President Trump did in Syria was very significant. And then cutting off the head of the snake, which he did, was something that was a gift to mankind. The point is we have very evil forces all over the world that can organize anywhere. Osama bin Laden, as you might recall, was in Sudan for many years, and the Clinton administration could have potentially have taken him out long before 9-11, saving the lives of over 3,000 Americans, and they chose not to do so. ISIS was a product of Obama and Biden's neglect of that region, and their continued belittling of the, of the magnitude of the threat, which turned out to be huge go back to a government that's going to coddle communist China and diminish the magnitude of, of Islamic extremism and the, the magnitude of threat that it represents to the United States. So it's a big choice. And what I do like is this president isn't looking to occupy countries. He's president Trump, he's not looking to extend our involvement in the world any more than it has to be. But I think he's suitably positioned and it's proven so many, many times now to show that the United States will uh, not allow its interests to be endangered. This is a war against humanity, and it needs to be stopped. And if anybody can do it, I believe President Trump is the one who can. Michael, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. It's a, always a pleasure to have you, and I hope you'll come back again. Absolutely, Alana. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for continuing to keep such a close eye on all these important uh, geopolitical issues that are easy to overlook or forget. But you've uh, done a great job of keeping um, the American people, I think, up to date on them and understanding the stakes involved in each one of them. My friends, I hope you have a very good week, a safe week, a healthy week. 
and I hope I will see you again here next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.